0: Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 Community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message.
1: Good morning. How are you guys? Good morning. Hello, hello. Uh, we are here to uh, get back into the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been teaching through that almost all year, and uh, we took a little break here to talk about fear, and we're jumping back in uh, on the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul, a guy in the, in the first century, wrote one of the earliest followers of Jesus and a missionary who planted churches all around the Mediterranean, he wrote a letter after he had visited with the church in Corinth. He wrote a letter back to them after he had got some news about how things were going with, with them. He wrote a letter back to them. And so kind of what we get in First Corinthians is like half of a correspondence. We get Paul uh, speaking to the church. We don't hear exactly what the church was bringing up, but we get, we get some clues throughout his letter about things they were talking about. And so Paul writes back to them. Um, there are some things in the book of 1 Corinthians that will make us uncomfortable when we read about them and when we go through them. Uh, I was actually talking to a group of pastors um, about uh, a, a couple weeks ago, and I was talking through, sometimes we're like, oh, what are you teaching through right now in the church? And I said, oh, we're going through 1 Corinthians. And it's, it's funny because some, some, sometimes pastors will look at you and they're like, why would you do that? You know, like, why would you go through that book of all books? And I'm like, and, and I'm just maybe... I don't know, negatively motivated or something, I'm like, I'm like, I want all the smoke, let's just bring it, let's talk about all the hard things, they're all basically there somewhere in the book, so we're going to do it. And today, we're going to talk about three texts, uh, one in First Corinthians and then two others, that are maybe some of the hardest and most controversial texts in the New Testament, and particularly as they, as they kind of land in our culture. They're very easy to skip over. I could never read to you what we're going to read to you this morning from the Bible. It's still in there, but when you go verse by verse, you have to read this stuff. You have to, you have to get to it. So uh, we're going we're gonna to go to it today and, and get into some really challenging stuff.
0: Yeah, so we decided to call this series Cringe-worthy because some of the uh, the texts that we're going to go through are going to feel kind of akin to some of the worst episodes of The Office, you know, like the ones where you're just like, I, I, can't, I can't look, but I have to look, and you like melt into the couch in just a puddle of awkwardness. Um, so it's going to take us some time. We're going to try to do our best in the short amount of time that we have to dig in, um, and we're going to try and dig out the heart of what... Paul is trying to say here. Um, but if I'm being perfectly honest, you might also not be super happy with where we end up. Um, the fact is that we all come to the Bible with different lenses. Um, maybe the family that we grew up in, or our friends, or our work culture will just say that this is wrong. Like, this, this sounds absolutely grating to our modern ears. Um, so, when we have those moments where we come to Scripture and it really challenges us, we have two options. We can either come to the and say, this is wrong because I know that I'm right, or we can come to it and say, maybe I need to rethink this in light of God's teaching.
1: So let's uh, let's jump in without, we got a lot of setup there, um, but let's Let's jump in. Uh, I, want, I want to point us to 1 Corinthians. We're picking it back up, and we're going to go through the, the next three or four chapters of the book over between now and Advent. So we'll be, we'll be in this for a, a, a couple of weeks here. Um, the key to interpretation when you read the Scripture, a key to interpretation is you always examine the context You read verses, and then you read kind of what's around it so you know what was just said, what is being said. Uh, These things follow a flow of thought, and it's very easy to pick a verse out and not understand where it came from. And honestly, a lot of damage has been done throughout history by people picking one or two verses out of the Bible and saying, this is what the Bible says, and that's it without actually doing the work to understand what is the context? Why was it said? These things were written for a particular audience at a particular time, and you need to understand some of that stuff. It requires a little work, but it's, it's worth doing. Um, so we need, to, we need to look at that, and we need to remember that when we read something from Paul... Um, if we understand, as we understand the inspiration of Scripture, Paul is not going to contradict Jesus, he's not going to contradict Peter or whatever, like these things should all fit together. So when you find a very difficult text like the one we're about to read, you can look at other texts in the New Testament and figure out how do these things fit together, um, because there, there should be some sort of harmony there. Okay, all that set up, buckle up everyone, First Corinthians 11, starting with verse 2, Paul says this, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since it is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, it got so much clearer there, didn't it? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as man was made from, for as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves: Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her head, to her for her covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God easy stuff, right? Yeah, so there's all this stuff in there. You, you read that, and you're like, uh, I, I guess I'll just skip. I didn't get anything from Jesus in, that re- in reading. You're just like, whoa, head covering, long hair, short hair. We shaving our head, the glory of God, the glory of man, all this stuff. Uh, angels get a mention in there. Um, remember, this is written to a particular audience at a particular time, the church in about the year 54-ish AD, the church in uh, Corinth. And they have particular cultural concerns that are going to show up in their worship and in their gatherings. They, they have things they have to worry about and think about that we actually, we don't have some of those things. Some of their cultural concerns are just different than ours. But what you do when you read something like that is you have to look for what are the universal principles here and not just say, oh, there's nothing there and I'm just going to ignore it. What in there is universal and what is actually just kind of a, a, a cultural thing? Now that takes some skill, and as I mentioned, some people in church history have done that very poorly. But if we're going to look at a principle that comes out of all of that stuff about head coverings, and we'll get into that a little bit in a bit, but the principle there is is this idea of headship, the idea of of, of this order that God has put in creation. Now the word head that shows here like, like God is the uh, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of his, his wife. Uh, that word is a Greek word, kephale, and it, it can either mean source, like the head of a river, like headwaters, the source of a river, or um, more often in the Greek and ancient world, the, the word head means something like authority. So when, when, he's, when he's laying this out, he's, he's talking about some sort of authority. Um, and he says, Jesus is the head over man, man is the head or authority over his wife. Jesus is then under authority when he is under God the Father. Now, if you lay all that out and and visualize that, God the Father, Jesus, the the husband and the wife, or the man and the wife, um, it looks like a very obvious sort of hierarchy situation, and in fact, it, it looks like exactly the kind of thing that reinforces the patriarchy, which in the modern Western world, in America and most parts of Europe in the 21st century, we don't like hierarchies, and we, don't, we certainly don't like patriarchy. In fact, the only time you hear patriarchy is when it's preceded by the words smash the. So, um, so that, that strikes us as like really cringeworthy and weird. Now... I just want you to notice something. Jesus is mentioned at the beginning of that opening section and at the end. So he's mentioned as an authority over the husband, over the man, and then in submission to his father. So interesting, if if the idea is that man is in some way an authority or has some sort of headship with his wife— Um, That puts him in authority with her, but it also puts her in submission to him. And Jesus models both of those things. He is in, in authority over man and in submission to his father. Jesus actually comes and models both sides of a marriage dynamic.
0: Yeah, and I think this helps if we understand it from the position of, let's just look at this in a marriage first, and then we'll apply it to the church. Um, Paul also talks about this idea of headship when he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to read that to you now. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their hus- to their husbands. Um, and this is a similar structure to what you saw that we just read in 1 Corinthians 11. Wives submit to the, your husbands as head of your households. And that wives submit to your husbands in everything, like that is probably one of the most cringeworthy Portions of it, and without a doubt, that verse in isolation, like Chris was talking about, without the context, has been used over the years and generations to manipulate and subjugate women and justify all kinds of terrible behavior. But that is not what we're talking about here. This type of headship that we see in scripture is not about domination or control. It's about direction and authority. You can think about the role that your actual head plays for the rest of your body. The head kind of determines where there might be dangers. It uh, makes critical choices. It turns when necessary. And it's an often complicated and um, critical job. Uh, it's the head's responsibility to keep the rest of the body safe. The head would never make a choice that it would thought would endanger or harm the rest of the body, because to hurt the body would ultimately mean to hurt itself. So allowing your husband to be your head means that you trust him to look out for your best interests, even if he initially makes decisions that you don't instantly agree with. Um, And we know that this is what he's asking wives to do. This happens? (laughs) Never. Um, Because (laughs) listen to what he tells husbands next. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from the creation story in Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice that he is referring to creation as a model or an example of Jesus's love for the church, and that's going to come up again later. Um, A couple months ago, it was our eighth wedding anniversary, and Zach and I sat down on the couch, and we watched our wedding video. And honestly, it was the first time that we had probably done that since maybe our first anniversary. So it was really fun to sit down and see all the faces of people that were there celebrating with us, and it was just a flood of memories coming back. Um, Chris, you were there. Uh, You officiated our wedding, and we got to the part in the video where you were talking about the value and the purpose of marriage. And you said something along the lines of if there's one thing that I want you to remember from this day I know there's a lot going on here but if there's one thing I want you to remember these two words and I was like ah, I don't remember this part but Zach was sitting next to me and he was like honor and cherish and by golly Gold Star. Good job, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) That was exactly what he was talking about. Those two words. I'm glad one of you was listening that day. I had a lot on my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you were teaching on this idea that the wife's role is to respect her husband, and that the most valuable thing that a wife can give to her husband is to honor him and to respect him, and that the best gift that a husband can give to his wife is to cherish her. And we, we see this pattern over and over again that what we submit to, we give honor and respect. And the things that those that we lead, we try and do that in love. Um, so, like Chris was saying, Jesus demonstrates both of these to us. He shows us both what it means to submit well and to lead well. Um, he sets the example um, and shows us that leading in, in, shows us that leading and submission only works when we lead with love and we submit with respect. Um, when Zach and I first got married, uh, we were here in Richmond uh, when we were dating, and he got a job in Lynchburg, Virginia. So on that wedding day, that was sort of the transition period where I had to make that decision to leave this church community, to leave my friends that I had here in Richmond. My mom was living in Richmond at the time, and part of the process of, of being married and being his wife was to follow him to this new city to start over again. Um, That's a way that I submitted to him and the plan that he knew that was going to be best for our family in the long run. And Zach cherishes me in in the everyday, when he balances the checkbook, which I'm terrible at, uh, when he goes grocery shopping, which I hate doing, um, and when he takes out the trash, which I'm honestly just too lazy to do. Um, But he led out when it was time for us uh, to buy a house, when it was was and wasn't time for us to get a cat. And he is incredibly respectful of my ideas, my goals, my personhood. And 99.9% of the time, we make all of those decisions together as equal co-partners in our relationship because he authentically cares about my input. But Zach, if he were to decide... um, I know that he is just as grounded in scripture and truth as I am. If he were to say, you know, I really feel like um, my call in teaching is leading me to teach science in a third world country. um, That would be a seismic shift in our relationship and everything that that meant for our family. But ultimately, that would be what we would do. Um, So those are just some examples of what headship looks like in our relationship. We could probably talk about specific examples all day. Um, But I do want to be clear that this principle um, that we're talking about here in this verse is not that all men have authority or headship over all women. That's not the model that's being laid out. It's about men are called to lead in their households, loving and cherishing their wives and helping them flourish wives are called to submit to their husbands and come alongside them as they lead the family forward. Um, So Paul takes this dynamic of the home, and then he applies it to the church as well. The church is meant to be like a family, and so just like there's order in the home, there's order in the church as well.
1: All right, so let's talk about how it shows up in the church. Um, This is easily the most cringeworthy of all the texts that, that we've got, I think. Um, and and it's, it's actually cringeworthy in, in, in the original Greek, too. I think they cringed when they read it. It's actually, scholars have looked at the, the, the couple verses I'm about to show you and have argued about these for centuries. This is a difficult text. The Greek grammatic structure of it is difficult, and it's difficult in English, okay? So when you hear this, you're like, whoa, what's going on there? It is, it is a challenging text. Um, But I want us to to look at it. Paul writes a letter to uh, his protege, a guy named Timothy. Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And he writes a letter. We call it 1 Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. And and he's giving him instruction of how to lead in the churches. And and it's almost like a a church planter's manual or a pastoring manual of here's different instructions for the church. And there's a lot of instruction about when they gather the church and when they worship, um, how how should they function together. And so Paul in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 Here's the thing, when, when you read something difficult, um, you, you don't go, well, that's just weird, and it or it doesn't apply, or I don't care, or I don't like it, or whatever. You may, you may feel those things. You may go, like, I don't like that. Um, but the, the real growth comes when we dig in and go, what is going on here, and let me figure out why it was going on, and, and does it mean anything to me now? And I think when you read that, you have to go, okay, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority over a man, she, she must be silent, okay, when he says that, um, you have to go like, okay, something is being prohibited here. We can't pretend nothing was said there. Something was said there and, and something was being prohibited. What, what is it and why? Um, the, the, the prohibition is this phrase, teaching and having authority, um, put together. It is not having authority at all, and it is not teaching at all. It is this authoritative teaching piece that goes together. If you read on past 1 Timothy 2, right into the next couple of verses, it goes right into eldership. So what a lot of people have concluded, and I think this is right, is that he's actually talking about the elder role within the church is the, as this authoritative teaching position. We would say elder, or in my case, like lead pastor, um, that, that in, in that spot, that is what is being prohibited, from a woman being in that role. It is not a prohibition over women teaching at all or else Rachel wouldn't be here. We as a church have <laughs> have had women teach before and, and she's, she's great at it also. It is pointing us back to this idea of headship and how it actually applies within the church. In the church, um, It's not that women can't pray or teach or have leadership in the church. This church has women who pray and lead and teach all over the place. We have incredible leaders in this church, uh, men and women. Um, It's just that it's the role of men to provide headship in two places only, in the home and in the church, the the home as Rachel explained, and then the church as the family of God to to make some of those uh, hard decisions and, and to lead out. Um, ultimately, it's it's a it's a, a role. Uh, eldership in the church is a role of of re, re, a great responsibility to be um, holy and, and to be sacrificial and to love and serve the flock, uh, the body the, the body of Christ. Here, um, it is uh, the role that that we we serve God, and and we the elders help direct the body, which is the bride of Christ, um, and, and and where the church should go. Interesting one of the context things there because it would be very easy to say, oh, Paul's just talking to Timothy. Timothy was at Ephesus. Ephesus had some specific cultural things that don't apply to us, right? Because we can do that. We're going to do that with head coverings in a second. But we can just say, oh, that that what he said doesn't apply in our culture. But when Paul says it, interestingly, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over her man, she must be silent. And then he says, For Adam was created first, then Eve, and then he talks about Eve sinning and this, this whole thing. Clearly what Paul is doing is grounding his command there in something to do with creation, in the way God has ordered the world. Um, because he says Adam was created first, and you're like, weird, is this a race? So Adam was created first, like, are we? did he win? Like, it's, it's weird, right? But Paul has in mind the creation, how God ordered the universe. He's not talking about some current cultural trend in the Roman Empire. This has been a very important text for me, Um, And the reason is because you hear it from all sides in our culture right now. Um, You will hear people say that within the church body, men and women are completely interchangeable and should function in every way doing exactly the same things like all across the board. You hear um, a a lot of that. Um, and, And that's very popular in America, in the Western world, in the 21st century. On the other extreme, you will hear people read this verse and say, women should not talk in church at all. Now, that sounds weird to you, right? But there are a lot of churches and cultures that would apply that that way. And there are a lot of religions in the world. We're talking the whole globe of billions of people that would apply that also, either the Christian version of that, or a different religion that would say, "No, this is not, this is not right, so there are different ways of seeing the world, and, and in a lot of the world they 're going to apply that in a very um, what, we, what we would think of as a very conservative sort of way and at area 10, we, we, we kind of walk through through the middle of that, and we say this: men and women are equal before the Lord, equal in dignity and value and worth. We are both recipients of salvation. We both together show god 's character, we both reflect God's image. Um, but we function in different roles at home um, and in the church. And in this church, that means uh, men are elders and women are not.
0: Yeah. In and in a culture, our culture, where men and women are constantly in a battle of anything you can do, I can do better. And women are actually still having to fight to earn the same wage for doing the exact same job, which is ridiculous. Um, to sit here on stage and say, To a group of people and on to the internet, that there is there is one thing women that God doesn't want you to do. That's not an easy position for us to take. It doesn't make our lives any easier by bringing this up. Okay, Um, but I need you to understand that it's not a power thing. It's not that women are less capable or lesser than in any way. Um, It's part of this biodiversity in the world, in this universe that God created that makes it so beautiful. God created boundaries between day and night, and land and sea, and plant and animal, and man and woman. And those differences are what allow such a diverse beauty to exist in the cosmos. These boundaries exist that we might see the all encapsulating three dimensional power of a most high God. The fact that men and women are different and created for different purposes is not stifling, it's not chauvinistic. It's a reflection of a complicated, multifaceted God who cannot be contained to a single gender. As Genesis 1 says, says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And and truthfully, the majority of what we see in Scripture is not directed to men and women. The majority of Jesus' teachings and the doctrines of our faith are just directed at people. Um, We're all together on this journey of faith, trying to become like Jesus. And there are a few cases where men and women are addressed specifically and separately in in Scripture, and they're told to do different things. Um, We think that's worth paying attention to. Uh, Being different brings different things to the table. Being different means that we'll struggle with different things, but only together can we truly reflect the image of God. And working together, we can become all that God intends the church to be.
1: That's good. Um, last thought then, I, want, I do want to talk about the head covering stuff just real briefly. And I made a decision early on as we were going through First Corinthians 11 looking at this, and, and, and I said, okay, a lot of this is really cultural and, and doesn't have a lot of application, a lot of the, the head covering thing. Um, in, in the church at Corinth where you have people that are Asian and, and, and Greek and, and, and some Roman background, maybe some Jewish people, um, how you would cover your head or if you would cover your head meant different things to different groups. And in worship, the person leading might cover their head, but then other people wouldn't. And so you had to navigate very practically when you walked into the church. If, if you walked in some people had their head covered, some didn't, It would there would be this little, like, who's in charge here and what's going on. It was a little bit complicated to, to sort out, and so there was obviously some disagreement going on about that, and Paul is trying to clear that up. Doesn't clear it up for us because it's not our issue, would have helped clear it up for them, though, um, and so... So don't, you don't, we don't read that and conclude that we, you know, millennia later should definitely cover our heads because that actually isn't a thing in our culture. Again, we read that and go, what is the principle that we should get here? Uh, what, 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 what? What's the, the gold that we mine out of this thing? Because if, if someone walks in here, if, if any woman walked into church in the bird with her head uncovered, nobody would look at her and be like, what is wrong with her? How dare she, right? Like, that's just not a thing in our culture. But I was in Turkey a couple months ago, and it was a thing. I remember calling my wife and saying, this is really odd, the different interpretations of head coverings with women that you would see just on the street from full-on covered to just a scarf to like not at all and to all these different things. I was like, that's weird. And and my wife sort of was like, and what do men wear? And I'm like, they pretty much dress like they do everywhere in the world. I don't know. I'm sorry. It's, it's, I don't know. That's just the way it is. But it it was a reminder to me that if if we were having this conversation in many places in the world, it's a different conversation, right? And so, and it was a reminder to me as I can, as I can step into another culture and go, why do they do that? That's weird. That is my American arrogance sort of coming out where I just go well I clearly I do it the right way and all of these other countries are wrong. No, that's that's there's an arrogance in that right. So we have to we have to look at okay why are the things done the way that they are and try to figure out what are the what are the universal principles in it. Um, remember this: some things in Scripture are cultural as you read them. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament written to the Israelites that were written for a nomadic tribe. We are not nomadic, so you don't need laws about. You know, out, outdoor sanitation when you have indoor plumbing, right? Like you wouldn't read that. I, I was thinking, I was trying to think of a good example. Like if if Jesus came and, and walked in here today and said, um, "I have a new rule for you: only watch one hour of television a day," and that was like this is my proclamation, right? And that was written down. And let's say like two thousand years from now, people would read it and they go, "Jesus said, only watch two hours of television a day." You might, 2,000 years from now, we hope, say, I don't watch television at all. Uh, You're like, what is a television? You know, there would be some distance there, and you could either dismiss it and say, well, I don't have a television, so that doesn't matter, or the, the wiser thing to do is you go, what is the principle here? What is the universal principle? A prohibition against something like watching television would probably be something like, hey, this thing, this little box will form your character. This could be an idol to you. This could be idolatry, and, I'm, and I care about your heart and your character, and so I care about what you're putting into your body, right? That could be the universal principle that just has a current cultural expression about television. So look for the universal principle, and remember that many people want to dismiss the Bible then on the other side and say, this is all just cultural. Um, and, they, and, and they'll say, oh, the stuff about, the stuff about uh, headship or any of that, that's just cultural first century Roman culture. It doesn't apply today. And they won't even look for a universal uh, principle. Head coverings, obviously, are not our thing in our culture, but it, it is worth looking at the principles of honor, respect, submission, and headship. Those concepts are actually still useful.
0: Yeah. So Let's try and zoom out and find what those universal principles are and see how we can apply them to daily life. I think the first thing that we can pull from this text is that, number one, God is a God of order. Um, and I think that the deeper that you dive into science, you see patterns and rules that start to show up that show intention and design, that science textbooks just can't explain away. Um, the second law of thermodynamics basically says that things become more disordered and random over time. Like your, your, your bedroom does not magically clean itself. Things are just going to slowly fall apart unless someone comes in and intentionally sets order in there. Um, so the universe isn't some cosmic mistake, and neither are you. Our bodies, as scriptures tells us, are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that suggests that God has put a lot of care and intention into us. And when we come to understand that we're created in the image of God, uh, we can see that he has a bigger picture, an overarching blueprint that tells us how we can flourish and live life to its fullest potential. Uh, We look at Scripture to lay out how he has ordered the world and learn to live according to that um, this text in Corinthians points us to that order of the universe, uh, created universe, over and over again. That that line that we read earlier, th- that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, sounds completely random and out of nowhere, but the angels, people in this time period would understand that, like, God created the angels to be in submission to him, and there's, um, a story that comes out in Jude 6 that shows how some of the angels decided to rebel against that authority that they were given, that they rebel against God, and they, um, They try and mess with that framework, and ultimately they're cast out of heaven as a result of that. And so that imagery brings back that story, and they say, like, this is basically a warning from Paul that if you mess with this framework, you don't know what it's going to do. You could get cast out of heaven. Like, there are going to be consequences for these actions. Um, You think about... uh, if an average Joe were to take the the plans that an architect made to build him a new house and just start moving, just getting rid of pillars here and moving this giant window over there, and I'm gonna move everything, three feet to the right, and not understanding any of the underlying structure and complexity that it goes into building a house. Um, And then he just hands those plans over to a builder and says, do that now. Uh, The way that he wanted his house to be built might be better in the short term for what he wanted, but ultimately that house isn't going to be stable. It's not going to have the structure that it needs, and it's going to fall down. Um, So this is this idea that, like, God clearly lays out his order for the universe in Scripture, and that's why Paul references it so much. These things matter, and the small decisions that we make have a big impact on our overall well-being.
1: A uh, second, second principle that I think is big to pull from this is is, num- is is this. We value Scripture, and we want to follow it as closely as we can, and this is a, a, a guiding principle of, of our church that um, that we, that we we, we want to read it and understand it and know it and, and go to it as a real guide for the way we really live in the real world in this, in this modern age. Um, I, I, remember t- I remember we ordained elders uh, on stage here. Uh, this was years ago. We, we ordained some elders, and there were some men up here, so we're praying over these men, and I just preached a sermon on whatever, and, um, and so I, I walk outside out front, and this woman comes up. So we, I preach the sermon, we ordained elders, and then I walk outside, and this woman comes up to me, and she's probably about 70 years old. And she says, um, I want to ask you about what, what you know, that, that, that message in there today. And I was like, okay, I thought we were going to talk about the sermon. And then she said, um, why were there only men on stage for the eldership when you ordained elders? Um, and I said, well, we you know, we believe God calls men to be elders, and and so that's what we do as a church. and she she started getting like a little agitated. It was, it was kind of funny because this woman doesn't go to our church, but her daughter does. And her daughter was standing right behind her, looking at me like wide-eyed. And she, and so her her mother starts like kind of coming at me pretty strong. And so her daughter's standing behind her going like, and she's like mouthing the words like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm like, it's cool. It was fine. I, I was fine with it. And we talked, and I, and I tried to explain, you know, okay, here's, here's where I think the scriptures go with this and this is why. Um, and then she said, and, and I think this is a pretty common reaction to it. She said, I can't believe that you would teach or believe this in the year, whatever year it was, 2016 or whatever it was. I can't believe in 2016 you would you would teach this. And what I didn't say, but what I wanted to say was, I can't believe you think the year matters to me. That's not what we do here. Like, and I didn't say that. I was I, I said, you know, I I don't want to be combative or whatever, but but that's not what we do. We are not holding a, a finger up in the wind and figuring out which way it blows and then just go with whatever culture is doing. And we hold that principle here and we'll hold that principle for a whole bunch of things because we think that valuing the Scripture and following it is the, is the best way to live. It's the best way to not completely mess up our lives. Um, and so we are going to look at what does the Scripture teach and we will not change with every cultural wind that blows. And I think that, that when a church decides to become like the culture in every way, um, I, I think that's the end of the church. I think that that church eventually uh, dies. And then the last thing I want to say, last point of this is, is this, number three. Uh, we don't always get this right. Okay, it's easy to hear. I mean, we've, we've studied it, we've looked at it, we've taught it. It's, it's easy to be like, well, I guess they think they've got the right answer or whatever, um, and it's, it's complicated, right? Um, I heard a, a, a pastor that I really respect said... Um, I'm 100% sure about 80% of my theology. I'm just not sure what fits in the 80%. And I totally related to that. I can stand firmly with conviction about a lot of things, but which are the things that you're supposed to stand with in firm conviction, sometimes that can be pretty difficult to, to, to get right. But as a church, what I can commit to you and say what we have done, what we will continue to do is consistently go back to the scriptures and, and, and study them and try to understand their culture and context and then try to use them and bridge the gap between the modern world um, and, and, and help people grow. We, we really wanna teach people at the church to be with Jesus, to learn his teachings and to walk them out. And so we're gonna get into the teachings and stuff that's hard and uh, we won't always get it right. Um, I think when you look at the gender stuff, um, the things we're, we're looking through here and teaching, we could be wrong. I, I don't think we are, but we, we could be. Uh, and we're trying to lead by the Holy Spirit to understand the best that we can. And if this topic doesn't rattle you, because there will be some people who will be like, why did you say that? You know, they might email this week or have a conversation. And then there'll be other people who will tell me, yeah, I think that's right and, and I, I, you know, that was good that you took a hard topic or whatever if it's not this topic that will rattle you come back next week or the week after it'll be something else like it's it's going to happen um, and i think that's actually a good sign not a bad one anytime you are in a real relationship with anyone there has to be disagreement so if you're going to be in a real relationship with the creator of the universe god is your heavenly father if you're going to be in an actual real real relationship with the real somebody on the other end of that relationship there has to be disagreement. If God believes and teaches and thinks absolutely everything that you already believe, teach and think, there's a good chance that's not God. That's just you projected like bigger, okay? So there has to be room for disagreement um, and, and, even, and even some challenge. Uh, that's actually a, a, a feature of a real relationship.
0: Yeah. I think at the heart of this scripture, the whole reason that Paul brings this up is because it's important to understand the balance of leadership and submission. We all have areas in our lives where we lead and where we submit, and so I think we each can ask ourselves two questions. The first one would be, uh, where is God calling me to lead more fully? You can think about the areas of influence that you already have, places that God has placed you and gifted you to guide others through hard things, to make tough decisions, and to live by example. Who are the people that God has placed in your life that you are in a position to draw them closer to him? Maybe it's your kids or your friend group or the people that you work with. Are you intentionally guiding those relationships in grace and truth? Are you pushing them closer to uh, transformation boldly and kindly like Jesus did. Um, Parents, this might look like not passively waiting for the church to teach your kids about Jesus, but to take an active role in their faith journey. We have a lot of teachers in this church, and I think sometimes it can be easy for teachers to start to see their students as data points or test scores um, because that's the things that you're measured by. But to remember that this is one of the most challenging years that these kids have ever had and that they are, are struggling through this and to give them grace and guidance through that. Um, I think for those that are serving on teams at this church, it's possible that God is calling you to step more into a leadership role on that team. But we all have places that we can lead more fully. And likewise, uh, the other question would be, where do I need to submit more? Uh, Where is God calling to me to submit more fully? Um, There are probably areas in your life that you've still got a little pride um, that you have trouble letting control of, if you work in an office environment, it might be your relationship to your boss. Um, maybe you you say some things behind their back when they're not around, or you just don't respect the decisions that they're making as they're they're trying their best to lead the company forward. Um, wives, it could be resisting the temptation to nitpick your husband when they don't reach your, your very high expectations. Um, hus- husbands, I think... Trusting in God to provide for your family can be a huge challenge, Um, even as you recognize that maybe you need to take a step back from the workload that you currently have been carrying so that you can spend more time with them. Trusting that God is still going to provide for your family. Um, Church family, this could be even um, trusting in the leadership and the eldership of this church and recognizing that it's a, a group of guys, um, but they love this church so much. Um, they prayed over each of us this morning as we prepared um, to come up here, and, and they are doing their best to serve this faith community. Um, and it could just be trusting that God has a plan for you, even when you have no idea where it's leading yet. We all have a place in our heart where we can submit more fully. Um, we're going to take some time to pray for each other. Um, as men and women of God, for the men and women of God. Um, we all have equal worth, dignity, and value, and our own individual journeys toward Christ um, as we're learning to lead and submit. So I'm gonna ask everybody to stand with us and then we're gonna pray. Abba Father, this is this can be hard for us to hear, and I know that. Some of you, um, some of those in, in, in this room right now, are squirming in their seats or standing and squirming. I guess now, um, but we believe that what your scripture teaches us is true, and it's what's best for us, even if we don't feel it in the moment. I want to pray for all the women in this room specifically, as um, we have to hear these words, and it it fights against um, what we hear coming from media and from friend groups and everything that. Um, those voices in our heads that they would be silenced as we just try to understand who you are and what you have for us. Um, we each have areas that we can lead and we and we also have places where we need to learn to submit, places where our pride has gotten in the way, pra- places where we've let um, wanting to be right overpower relationships. So God, I just ask that you help us submit to your word. Um, allow us to be vulnerable in front of you, and to share, like, why why is this so hard for me to hear? Let's dig into that together. So that's my prayer for all the women in the room.
1: God, I pray for the men. Um, the, the the scripture can be can be very challenging when we are called to love, um, particularly to husbands, when we're called to love wives like Christ loved the church, which requires sacrifice and and death to self. and And so I, I pray that um, that husbands in the room will be. Leaders in their homes and be sacrificial and and giving up um, some some of the some of the childhood silliness and, and the boyhood silliness and, and, and being men of God who who lead well in their homes and and to, who cherish their wives. Um, I, I pray you uh, that if any. If, um, if there are men in the room that are not doing that or not stepping up to that role, I pray that they repent of that and they step into it and become the men that you called them to be and, and really to lead well in their home. Um, God, may the husbands cherish their wives in this, in this room and may uh, my prayer is that um, every wife in this room would feel um, really honored and, and cherished in, in, in the culture here that uh, that they they would feel blessed to be part of, of the community, um, God for and then for single men who um, it's easy to write this off. And say, well, that part was husband and wives. That doesn't apply to me. But I, I pray that they lead the way um, in a culture that expects very little of men um, and 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 gives them very low expectations and and, and asks them almost to live and, and act very poorly, I, I pray that uh, we, we would step up above that and, and, and become more of the, the glory of God that, that you asked us to be. Um, I pray that the single men in this church will honor and respect and cherish the women in their lives all around them and uh, create a, a comfortable, safe environment for them. And, and, and um, I pray uh, all of that in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.